Welcome to Fun Problems, the problems of fun. I'm PDC Hayward. I'm AJ Brandon. And guess where we are, AJ? Uh, Frankie and Jenna's. <laughs> we're at Frankie and Jenna's for our annual Frankie and Jenna episode. Every year since the show started, we've done an episode in Frankie and Jenna's house. We are a little loopy and my voice is largely gone. I don't know how obvious that is. First of all, how is the latency so low? <laughs> because we're in person. We're in person. For the first time ever. It's amazing. I've never met you before. It's never true. stroked your beard. Never, never touched <laughs> you your You still elbow. haven't stroked my beard. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so we haven't seen each other since before starting Fun Problems. Yep. In fact, apart from this week, the last time I saw you was when we decided to make Fun Problems. How was it? It was. Oh, just wow. after the retreat, right before the lockdown and pandemic started. A lifetime ago. We're all coming full circle here. Yeah, our, yeah. This is our arc. <laughs> Welcome to the final episode of Fun Problems. Uh, <laughs> So, you're here visiting your son. I'm here visiting my son. We just recorded a bonus episode where we did this whole intro. And so now <laughs> we're doing it again. So I'm a little... Uh, and also it's 1.30 a.m. after two days of hanging out and very little sleep. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to the quality of this episode. <laughs> Should be good. Uh, so, uh, I'm here visiting my son. And obviously in the process, wanted to hang out with the coolest uh, I, people I know. Yeah, I was, I was about to say, I'm not his son. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you are one of the coolest people I know. It's true. I'm your number two best friend. Number two best friend. Second best friend is how I like to put it. It, mm. Number two best friend is a longer and weirder way to say it, if you want to. <laughs> That's going to be my official title for things. <laughs> <laughs> and so what have we been doing? So we work together uh, and we've been talking some shop about work stuff, but mostly we've been hanging out with each other and our other Toronto friends, playing games, playtesting some prototypes. I met Frankie. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to provide the context of who Frankie is because she's come up a lot. Yeah, so Frankie is Peter's mortal enemy. <laughs> <laughs> Frankie's my second best friend. <laughs> Frankie is a graphic designer who works a lot with Jellybean and one of my absolute favorite people in the world. I'm staying at her house, which is why we're recording here. Who used to be Peter's mortal enemy. Who, who we met through sending me hate mail. So if you ever wanted to be one of my closest friends who I stay at your house, just send some hate mail to AJ and he'll pass it on. I mean, that's exactly how we became friends. <laughs> yes, that's the only way I know how to meet people. If anyone knows any other way. It's a very unhealthy coping mechanism. <laughs> and Frankie also works a lot with Jellybean and AJ and her have wanted to meet for a while because they've been working together and they met and it's delightful. And now we're all here except for Frankie who is not in her house, <laughs> which is why we're recording here. I'm going to send this episode. She's going to be like, why Why am I the first three minutes of the podcast? <laughs> so uh, let's, let's dive into what we've been doing. So we obviously played some prototypes. We also played Root for the first time each. Yeah. What do you think uh, of that? I liked it a lot. I had been told that it wasn't a game for me. Mm. And also that it was a game for me. And that obviously intrigued me. Mm -hmm. And after the first play, I was like, yeah, not a game for me. After the second one, I was like, oh, I get it. Like, mm -hmm. it's not a game I'll buy again. I think I used to own a copy. I never played that copy. <laughs> but it's very, it's very itchy. Like, I want to scratch that itch again. Hmm. I won't buy it and I won't suggest it, but if anyone else suggests Root, I'm like immediately in. That, that's so, where it sits for me. So what's the itch that scratches for you? No, no, it, it causes the itch. Oh. <laughs> Playing Root scratches the itch of wanting to play Root. Oh, okay, okay. Like, like you know, some games, this is actually going to relate to what we're going to talk about later, but you know, some games like get in your head a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Root's very much one of those games. I can totally see why it's taken off the way it has. I gotcha. The one thing I wanted to highlight from Root was I played the Otters, the River Folk, mm -hmm. and the thing with them is they can set prices for different services so they can let people use waterways or they can let people use their units or they can sell cards from their hand to other players. And so it ends up being a competitive experience, but the only interactions you have with people are positive where you're giving them things and you're getting paid for it. And the only other game that I can think of that I've had that experience with, right, if you have others, is Brass Birmingham, which I also just absolutely love. As mentioned before in previous episodes, I'm a very fellowship-focused player. I like to be with other people, and I like to make other people happy. 
but I also like to play competitive games. And so that's kind of a fun way to have my cake and eat it too, I suppose. Sarah Perry, who also works with the Jelly Bean, loves positive player interaction in competitive games. So check out her game Gift of Tulips if you haven't already. That's both you, AJ, and you, the audience. <laughs> and ask her for Rex. That's you, AJ, not you, the audience. Um, although I'm sure if you tweeted her, she'd answer. Yeah, she's very much into that kind of genre. Terra Mystica is the one I've suggested a few times. It's a pretty cutthroat game generally, but it does have that sort of like you build near me, we both get something mechanic. Mm-hmm. And so I'd, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that. I also like cutthroat games. The Estates is the meanest game I've ever played, and I think it's a masterpiece. I love that game. Can't wait to show that one to you. Maybe yeah, on air. Maybe. <laughs> Another thing is we had mentioned very briefly Everdell, and I really want to talk about this. I was very impressed by Everdell. Me too. Partially, I think, because I've heard designers bad mouthing it for like three or four years. If you listen back to one of our older episodes, Peter mentions Everdell in the same breath as I'm asking him for disappointing like gimmicks in games. And as soon as he said Everdell, I just cracked up because all I ever heard was there's no game there. It's just a super dull light worker placement with almost nothing there. It's all just the gimmick of the components in the in the tree. Now, first of all, the components are incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Frankie, who I don't know if we've mentioned before, Frankie <laughs> uh, came over to play games last night to a different friend's house, not to her house. And mm-hmm. we immediately pulled out Everdell and like, Frankie, you got to check this out. And she fell in love with it. She's got online and bought a copy already. Mm-hmm. And so the components are exceptional. So if you're into components like Frankie is, it's top in class. Mm-hmm. Did you want to discuss anything else about it? <laughs> Yes. So the one thing I wanted to talk about was hardcore gamers and designers who might be the people that you play test with the most might have very different opinions from your target audience. Because what we had heard universally was there's nothing there. It doesn't do anything. And really what they were saying was it doesn't do anything unique. It doesn't break any ground. Exactly. But what it does is deliver one of the most polished light Euro experiences I've seen and just absolutely nails everything it tries to do as well as I think you can do it honestly like there, there might be like one tiny tweak you can make to it but I was very impressed and it's a great product you yeah. know uh, two things one I was impressed I think I would have been less impressed without the years of bad mouthing like I had rock bottom expectations mm-hmm. and it massively exceeded them so if I'd played it without that I probably would have been like ah it's a bit annoying drawing a bunch of random cards but then they do have like the central area and they do let you draw a lot of cards and they have ways of getting rid of cards so like they do pretty good with the uh, the milling but i imagine drawing a perfect draw you would win that game more often than not which would be a normal complaint of mine but i had a blast with it i want to play it again same yeah the other thing i was going to say is you mentioned your play testers might have different needs than your target audience and that can actually go both ways right heavy game of play testers often want you to add stuff in and sometimes the best experience take that out like i've, I've played many games that were quote unquote for kids and it was clear that they were play tested with heavy gamers because they just had mechanic after mechanic and like different mode and we played as a pretty like party game and people were throwing in suggestions of like new stuff we can add and i was writing it down and being like it would work and then jeff fraser who's been on the show was like well hang on for your target audience do you need any of that like mm-hmm. couldn't you just do it in the simplest way possible rather than tying it into another mechanism and he's completely right like i don't know where we'll land with it but it definitely is the kind of thing where you could easily over egg the pudding mm-hmm. because you're playing with people who aren't the target audience for that. And so that, that works in both a positive and negative direction. I just wanted to flag that. Yeah, good call. So today we're doing follow-up for the interview with Jeff Fraser, who we just mentioned, my co-designer on Cartouche. I, I just had a few little things and they're sort of... <laughs> They're interesting because Jeff and I have been working on this game for two years and we basically took a year off during the pandemic. So a year, pandemic, another year. 
And so my follow-up is more like, I remember things differently and I don't, I'm not even saying he's wrong. It's just interesting how like you remember things differently. One thing, for example, Jeff was like, here's what I added to the game. And I'm pretty sure he didn't. <laughs> he mentioned that he added like icons that you cover up and that was in the game. And I think he improved them. The old system was like, the icons spend two spaces. And if you covered it all up at once, you didn't get anything. You had to cover up half with one piece and half with another piece to get a bonus. It was clunky, it was awful. Don't put that in your game. And he cleaned that up to what it is now. But then similarly, he didn't mention that he completely designed the way that you get pieces in that. So like he was kind of giving me credit for stuff I didn't do and taking credit for stuff that uh, we, we did together or that, that I did. And it's just, it's just so funny how when you co-design with someone you just completely like you become one person mm. and so this is not really a correction in terms of like Jeff said the wrong thing it's just interesting how, how it works so aj what are we talking about today today we're talking about oh wait i have no idea that's right it's another peter-led episode they happen once when we do the frankie and jenna's house episode that's the, <laughs> that's the law today we are talking about something i've been mulling over for a while so it's a model about thinking about creativity so it applies to board games because it's designed to apply to everything. And we'll be talking about it more specifically in the context of board games. But it's just generally a model that I've been thinking about a lot. I want to talk about how you can potentially use this model that I've invented to get clarity on your games as products. I'm going to say stuff and you're going to ask questions. It's going to be a conversation. Do you need, <laughs> do you need to write that down? <laughs> I'm uh, hearing you. I'm listening to you. What, what, I'm, what I'm saying you. is don't let me monologue for an hour because <laughs> I will. Yeah. So normally I have the show notes written and I give Peter the tiniest nudge and he just goes off. <laughs> yeah. It's been really interesting with the interviews for three people who aren't Peter, just seeing how they react to show notes very differently. Because with Peter, I need less because I know that if I just talk a little bit, he will build off a lot on it. Hopefully in a useful way. Yes. <laughs> this is a work in progress to begin with. This is my first time putting it in public, so I'm a little, I'm a little uh, vulnerable. So feel free to be critical as always, but just be aware that it's my baby. So this is a model about creativity that's called hook, craft, and spirit. And the, the very bare bones of it are that the success of a project is dependent on these three things. And to be ultra successful, you need all three in spades. But to be successful at all, you need at least one of them a lot. Hook is what gets you to watch the thing. That's what makes you go, oh, I'll check that out. I say watch because I think a lot about movies and TV, obviously in terms of games, it's what gets you to play the thing, what gets you to buy it, what gets you to check it out. That's Hook. Craft is then how well the thing is made, specifically in the context of how much enjoyment you get from experiencing it. So. A very well-crafted film is different to a very poorly crafted film, even though one can have a good hook and one can have a bad hook and they don't have to connect. So to clarify, it's about the observer more so than the person who created the thing. Absolutely. It's not the work itself. Yeah, it's from the audience perspective, but mm. the point of it is that you can think about this when creating something. And like, like with any model, it's, it's a reflection of what exists. I'm not inventing anything here but you can potentially use it to just have more of a focus on these things. So you can be like, ah, okay, I need more hook on this because it's not got a hook. I'm starting to think about this when I'm starting a project. The first two are very self-evident. <laughs> you understand why I watched it and how good it is. Spirit is the newer one to me anyway, and possibly to people. And that's what stays with you. Hmm. So I was talking about this with uh, my frequent collaborator, David Y. Stevenson. And he expressed it as hook is before you see it, craft is while you see it, spirit is after you see it, right. which is quite neat. Or uh, another way of thinking about it is, is hook is the road, craft is the vehicle, and spirit is the fuel. So 
if the vehicle's not very good, it's going to collapse. If there's no road to go on, it can't go very far. And if, if you don't put enough fuel on it, it also like won't won't go the distance. Does that does that make sense? Like as as a broad concept? I don't think the, the metaphor vehicle metaphor is not anyway. great. <laughs> I'm probably gonna, probably gonna cut that. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I I really like the emphasis of spirit because we've talked about it before uh, moment first design, which was I believe coined by Eric Lang. Yeah, where it's like you want your friends to be able to say, oh, this cool moment happened, and that's the thing that they tell their friends to. So I think when Eric Lang says moment first. What he's referring to is is specifically the spirit. Yeah, that that is a that is a really excellent example that I hadn't thought of. So, spirit is the one that I've been thinking a lot about because a lot of my work and this is this is going to sound self deprecating. I'm not I'm not fishing for compliments here. A lot of my work is missing that. A lot of my work is very well crafted for the level that I'm at, mm. and I do spend time thinking about hook and people click on my thing and enjoy it, and then it disappears from their mind forever. <laughs> Hmm. Spirit is the reason I came up with this because I made I made a sitcom. I'll, I'll tell the backstory. I made a sitcom called Night Crew. We might have talked about it on the show before. It had a really good cast, which is part of Hook. Like you know, you often be like, "Oh, this person's in it. I'll check that out." Mm-hmm. That's like what all TV is based off of, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then I thought it was well written, and then I hired professional script editors who like had a long career in TV, and they edited it. And we went back and forth and made a bunch of notes. And then I hired a professional producer and professional voice actors, and like. It was as well-made as I could make it. And I think it's right up there in terms of like well-produced, well-written and no one cared. (laughs) And part of that was hook. Part of it, it didn't have like a very catchy hook, but a big part of it was that it was fun and you finished it and then you never thought about it again because it didn't have spirit. And so spirit's this kind of intangible quality Typically, when, when people talk about like finding your voice, that's talking about spirit. I'll give you a little pushback because as soon as you said none of my work has spirit, the first thing I thought of even before you said Night Crew was Debbie Derryberry's uh, mother role in that. Oh, that's nice. I love that character so much. I, I was going to say the two areas of my life where I've had significant success, and I mean like beyond any success that Jellybean Games has had, has been my writing, which I could put a lot of myself into. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has a big audience because it sticks in your brain. And the podcast I used to run called Being Honest With My Ex. And Being Honest My Ex had great hook. It was a recently broken up couple recording kind of their first conversations back. A lot of people were like, oh, I want to check that out. The craft was okay, frankly. Like, I'm an okay editor. It was not very focused. We just kind of got on and rambled. But the spirit of that, it was very raw and honest. And like, we poured ourselves into that. And you could tell. And people connected with that unlike anything else I've ever done, hmm. such as Frankie, whose house we're in. That for me is like the one time in my life I feel like I've truly captured spirit and put it in a project. So that's the broad idea. I'll go through it and you can talk about how this maybe applies to board games particularly. Sure. How about we do that? Yeah, sounds good. All right, so let's talk about Hook. So I've got the three Ps here. Since then, I've kind of worked out some other stuff, but for now we'll stick with the three Ps. Premise, platform, and property. So property is obviously IP based, or it could be like the the world of scythe that whatever that takes place in, right? Yeah. So so property in this context means an established property that the audience already knows, right. and like you said, that can be an IP, an intellectual well, property, or it could be Eric Lang's name. Eric Lang's name is on the box. So property is a Stonemaier game. So property is explicitly something that the audience is familiar with. Yeah. 
Okay, because I was also using that as like uh, just a world that people might not be familiar with, but like they're no, no okay. properties explicitly. Okay. You already are invested in this, mm-hmm. and now you want to know more. So making a Rick and Morty game is going to do better than making the exact same game without that theme. Right. So then premise would be what I was just thinking, right? Premise would be like, oh, the idea of that is so cool. Yes, yes. So right. premise uh, in, in games is um, like Zulkin has the big moving thing. You know, the, the moving thing. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and premise is what we normally talk about when we talk about Hook most of the time. Most of the time what people latch onto is theme, not mechanics. Like if you tell the random person at the game store or whatever the theme of a game and it's a great thematic hook, that's much more likely to grab them than a mechanical hook, even if it's an equally good mechanical hook. But I would say for the for say the BGG crowd, as we refer to it, the mechanical hook might be what gets them in the game. It, it, can, it definitely can be. I still think thematic and property are going to be much stronger for the BGG audience. Think of how many Kickstarters people back without knowing a single rule in the game. Yeah, you yeah. Know? that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, I, I guess for me um, and, and my, my gaming groups generally, like, yes, theme is huge but a lot of the time we'll be like oh i want to see how that plays out definitely i'm not trying to downplay that right, but right. If, if i was trying to make percentages, if you had to pick one <laughs> yeah I, I might go like 70 percent theme 30 percent mechanic right that's, right yep, that's totally valid yeah. so premise is the idea that you're introducing basically that either they've never seen before or they want to see again property is exactly what we talked about something they're already invested in they're like oh yeah that we talked about um ip so rick and morty but also like eric lang's name in the box yeah that's a property they're like oh eric lang i know that i want to check that out mm-hmm. if board games had actors actors would be the properties right Uh, one thing i'd like to touch on just while we're here is that property has less value than you think if it's not used carefully yeah so i'll give you an example eric lang made a game called ancestry now how many of you listening have ever heard of that and that's because that's outside of the things that you know eric lang for it's not a big minis game it's not a ccg it's a very light little Euro, I, I think. I've never, I've never played oh, it. Oh, that's my favorite Eric Lang game. Really? I love that game. Oh, wow. No, I love it. I'd, I'd forgotten about it until now because I haven't thought about it in two years, but I might go get a copy of that because I love <laughs> that game. See, and th- that's, a, that's a great point because I remember, I don't think I was talking to Eric Lang directly, but I think I was talking to one of his friends or whatever. He's part of the Toronto general ecosystem. They were talking about how that was like a really like passion project for him and he poured a lot into that. Yeah. But even though it had his name on it, people didn't associate that with how they see his name. And that can mean a lot. I gave an example in my Why You Are Good Games Won't Sell YouTube talk about how people think that these things have so much meaning and they really don't unless you have a really strong brand associated with it. The example I gave in that is, do you know who directed Star Wars Empire Strikes Back? Star Wars is the (laughs) top five biggest properties on planet Earth. Who hasn't seen Empire Strikes Back? It's the most popular Star Wars movie, or the most well-reviewed Star Wars Here's movie. Here's a twist. It was me. <laughs> I did it. Mm. And then for that same movie, I was like, do you know like who the production company was? Do you know who you know, X, Y, and Z? Yeah. And in the talk that I gave, I think there were 30 or 40 people in the audience. Not one of them knew any of the answers for that. In fact, I even gave the example of the newest uh, movie at the time, I think it was Force Awakens. And I was like, who is the main actress in that? Because she hadn't been anything else. And, oh, right. and people should know now for that <laughs> exactly but even even though it had come out and people had seen that movie they still didn't know who she was and so property matters but only if you can tie it into the thing that they know carefully i, I think i'm gonna make the same point just from a slightly different direction sure. a lot of people are like oh, my game if, if it had eric lang's name on the box it would sell and you're right it would sell more but if you took average non-selling game and put eric lang on the box that's not going to suddenly become a bestseller yes and that's partially what you're talking about with Ancestry, where it has to like kind of fit with what they already want. 
But I know I was very guilty of this for a long time where I was like, if this other publisher was publishing this game, it would have gone through the roof. And no, you know, the, the thing itself matters. The whole point of Hook is it gets more people's eyes on it yes. and maybe gets them in the door. That's where I think the car metaphor can be useful. Like you can have a very long road, but if you're using one of those cars that you pull backwards and let go, it's not going to get to the end of that road. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it, is that the road... So I guess maybe we can't cut it. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Just leave the bit in where you said you were going to cut it. <laughs> the road can be long. And if you think of road as like potential, right? Mm. The A really good hook gets you more potential customers. It gets you more eyes on it, but that doesn't close the sale. And, yeah. that's, and that's where you need the rest of things to come in. So there's two other things under hook that I'm going to mention because I think most people don't think of them. One is platform. And this one's very simple. Uh, what's the best-selling party game of all time or like in the last 20 years? Probably Codenames. Uh, no. Uh, it's got a black box. Oh, uh, Cards Against Humanity. Yeah. Where do you get Cards Against Humanity? Do you know this? Snakes and Lattes. Amazon. They were exclusively on Amazon for a very long time. Mm. And they were the number one selling game on Amazon for a very long time. And they had a business model where like, hey, our game, you get it on Amazon, the end. Mm. That's it. I'll make a similar point in a different way. Imagine the best game that you can imagine, the best-selling game that you can possibly conceive. Mm-hmm. In one universe... It's in every store. In the other universe, it's only on a publisher's website. Right. Which one's going to sell more? Yeah. <laughs> so platform is basically how easy it is for someone to get. Again, a lot of these examples I've, I've kind of mentally got for film and TV. So mm. if your show's on Netflix, more people are going to see it than if it's on IMDb TV. And if you take it even uh, more strong in that example, then YouTube, right, would be like right. the even more accessible one. And uh, we just recorded the bonus episode about Inhuman Conditions. That one you can only buy directly from the publisher's website. I don't even know if they have copies left anymore. So platform is is an important part of Hook because I think Netflix and YouTube are interesting because I browse YouTube looking for things to watch. Hmm. A lot of people browse Netflix looking for things to watch. And they're just different platforms. And if you're on both somehow, then that's going to increase your views. So does platform make sense as a hook? Yeah, yeah. So how does that translate to board games for us? One interesting direction that I think people should consider is if you're self-publishing or if you're going to a publisher and thinking through what that looks like. So if there's a publisher who's really small... They're only going to have so much reach, you know, there, there are obviously examples of small publishers that did something that exploded, but knowing what type of game you have could affect which publisher you want to go to. And not to say like, yeah, of course, all your games are amazing, right? Right. Yes. Um, well done. <laughs> but, but some of the games fit platforms better. So uh, a really easy example is Kickstarter. There are certain games that fit Kickstarter really well, and there's some that yep. really don't, right? And, and Kickstarter in itself is a platform that will get eyes on your game, mm-hmm. which is not how it's quote-unquote meant to be used, mm-hmm. but for board games particularly, Kickstarter is where people go to learn about new games, mm-hmm. but only certain types of games, to, to, right. as, as you are saying. And so one thing that we're actually doing at Jellybean, originally everything we did was Kickstarter, and uh, we're probably still going to do Kickstarters for these games, but the goal of them is more for being developed for the platform of Target or Walmart being able to break into that more mass market whereas we've got a different line that we're going to be focusing on and that one is going to be built from the ground up specifically to be popular on kickstarter and and even more that we're thinking about the facebook ads when we're designing that game which sounds very corporate and cold but we also like we're only going to make games that we love. I think I think it might be worth going to some examples of how we're thinking about things. Yeah, so um, we talked a lot in, in the hooks episode about component hooks. Mm-hmm. And so now we're thinking not only component hooks, but also what components look good in a Facebook ad, which might mm-hmm. sound weird, but like a component that's fun to play with might not photograph well. Yes. And if, if it's a game going straight to retail, hey, you, you know, you can get away with that more. Mm-hmm. But for what we're doing where we're thinking about Facebook first, we are thinking about what looks good in the ad 
how can we make that a core part of the game because we don't want to do the the Everdell thing of like people getting angry that's not used enough mm-hmm. and then and then sort of building around that one other thing i want to say about platform is if a big publisher is interested in your game and you're like, oh, I want to, I want to do it myself, I'll use that time you killed me as a very obvious example. So that that's a two-player abstract game I have coming out, not through my companies, but through Pandasaurus Games. Firstly, they've done an amazing job on the art and dev. Like oh, they, yeah. they they blew that out of the water. But let's let's pretend that we've done an equally good job and we had the exact same game. Them publishing it is going to sell more copies than me publishing it. A because they bring the property of Pandasaurus Games, but B because they have the platform. Mm-hmm. And platform is not just sales point; it's also like voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Stonemaier game, the exact same game coming out from Stonemaier or from Weird Giraffe Games, is going to do better from Stonemaier. A because they have the fan base, they have like the property of their brand. But B because like they have that reach, they have Jamie's blog, they have every retail in the world listening to see what they're doing next. Mm-hmm. They have that that platform. So the the fourth one, this is so new, it's not even in my notes here, is identity hook, and this is one that I've been talking about uh, a lot internally. Identity hook is when someone is really into something to the point where it's part of their identity and you make a game for that identity. Everyone in their life is going to point them towards this this, this thing. Mm. Uh, so for example, for me, and this, this is not a game example, there were some shoes that came up on Kickstarter like three years ago and they were just brightly colored, well-tailored shoes. And if you ever met me, you know I love bright colors and I care about how I look. I had a dozen people send me a link to this Kickstarter being like, hey, they made this Kickstarter, Peter, for you specifically. And I clicked through and I immediately bought four pairs of shoes and they're the shoes that I wear all the time. A recent example of this was a board game called Dog Park. Mm -hmm. And it was a game about walking your dog at the park. And I was just like, oh, I know exactly who I'm sending this to. Calico is a good one. Yeah, Calico is a good one. I think that identity marketing is, is what you said. It's about focusing on something that that person holds really strongly and that people know about for them because the the core idea of this is you're creating marketing basically you're saying we don't have to necessarily hit exactly that person with our targeting if we hit someone in their bubble it's automatically going to get there it extends the reach of what you would normally have now again just like all these hook things it's not enough to just be like got the hook gonna make the sales i mean if it's a really good hook sometimes you do (laughs) but you then want to make sure everything is in alignment, especially for identity hooks. So I'm going to I'm going to use Calico as an example. Calico is a game that came from Flat Out Games, which is the trio who made Point Salad and a bunch of other cool stuff. And it's a midweight Euro about quilting, and so every quilter in the world got pointed to this game. Now, a that's great because you're making gamers out of non-gamers, and you're expanding your reach past people who are scrolling Kickstarter looking for games. Instead, it's anyone who knows someone who is scrolling past Kickstarter and who's into quilting, and you know, obviously, expanding the pie is great for everyone. But it's not enough to just do that and then be like, well, they're cool, so they're going to buy it. They then made sure that the art, which is beautiful, I think it's Beth Sobel, mm-hmm. incredible art, exactly matches what that player is looking for. There's a massive calico cat on the front, and that's like very, it's very crafty and homey, which is what the quilters are into. I haven't played it, but my understanding is that the rules are, it's not like quilting, but it's not, you know, you're not going to make Gloomhaven. <laughs> it's... It- it's, it's a light abstract puzzly sort of thing, uh, but it's, it's a very relaxed feel to it. Like it's a difficult puzzle to solve, but it's still like a relaxing flow to it. It's, it's light, there's no negative player interaction. You're just trying to do the best you can with your little thing and create nice cute little patterns. I'm gonna name a game that I think probably is the number one hook game of the last 20 years because it hits all four of these so squarely. Do you wanna to try to guess what it is? I'm not sure. I'll say it. You'll be like, oh, of course. Like, so the four are premise, platform, property, identity. I go for it. Patchwork. Who designed Patchwork? 
Gavir Rosenberg. It's a game we have to cover up all the things. Mm. This was the first one to do that, and every mm. gamer was like, oh, I can see how that would work. It's, is, that, is that really true? Wow. I mean, it might not be the first of all time, but it was the one that put them on the, on the table, mm. um, <laughs> literally. Uh, so the premise was a massive hit. The property is Uwe Rosenberg. The platform is Lookout Games has the platform because they've sold Agricola across the world. Yeah. And who was targeted by it other than gamers? Yeah, people who like uh, quilting and yeah. um, sewing and stuff. And and it was perfect. Like, my mum has a copy of Patchwork. My mum does not own games. My mum does not play... My mum doesn't own or play Jelly Bean games. My mum has owned and played Patchwork. Mm. Like, that's how effectively it nailed all four of those. And what's interesting is Calico is also similar to that. And I imagine a lot of people who picked up uh, Calico picked it up because they liked Patchwork. And like, oh, this is this right. reminds me of Patchwork. Right? Uh, Wing- Wingspan's another good example. It's maybe not as targeted. I mean, Birdwatch has probably got people sending it being like, it's birds, you like birds. Mm-hmm. But as well as that, it did open it past gaming into another identity of people who'd like maybe been interested in gaming, but been like, oh, I have to be orcs killing each other or like I have to be dry people trading the Mediterranean. It was like, oh, okay this is a game that I can get into and, and have fun with the theme and it, it feels like it's for me and that's the thing like Wingspan feels like it's for people who most games aren't for and it's also a very well designed game again you have to have everything line up to become a mega hit mm. but uh, hey that's Hook any questions about Hook? Nope that makes sense Hey, Craft I'm going to give you two words and this will tell you everything you need to know about Craft Fun Problems <laughs> go listen to that that's all we talk about all the time <laughs> except when we talk about Hook any questions about Craft? Obviously not, because we are experts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the reason I skip over this is because when most people are talking about like how to make board game, this is what they're talking about yeah. almost and, exclusively. And this is a much bigger question than the other ones. Like we could cover, you know, proper property or identity in an episode pretty easily, but craft is <laughs> craft, craft is the whole thing. Yeah. Right. So hook craft spirit. So let's talk about spirit now. This is, like I said, this is sort of not breaking new ground, but codifying things that have been intangible for a while. Mm. And my notes are pretty sitcom focused, I think. <laughs> so I'm going to I'm going to say them, and you're going to tell me. Uh... <laughs> for, for context, if you missed it, uh, Peter writes sitcoms. As well. Yeah, and th- that's how I came up with this after my sitcom didn't work, and I was like, "But why? I tried really hard," <laughs> uh, and it was because it was missing spirit. So I've got three kind of main categories, which is energy, earnestness, and voice. Oh, I like those. Thank you. I worked real hard on this. Um, I'm still, I'm still deciding where they should go. So I'm, I'm going to go through them one by one. I'm going to, I'm going to talk a little bit about what they are, and then get you to talk about how they relate to board games. Mm. So energy. One of the people who I was kind of beta testing this with was like, it should just be emotion, but I think they're subtly different. But I think emotion probably falls under it. Emo- emotion's floating a little bit. Emotion kind of covers all the spirit. Energy is. Uh, these are all hard to describe, so I might, I might say that a few times. But the energy of Breaking Bad is very different to the energy of Better Call Saul, despite them cosmetically being very similar and by the same creators and set in the same world. Mm -hmm. The energy of Adventure Time is very different to the energy of Owl House or Gravity Falls or The Simpsons, even though they're all, you know, family shows that are animated with, with certain things. So energy I think of as like pacing and emotion and like tone to an extent. Yeah, it's it's really tricky. Tone I've kind of got later, but oh that's the other thing. So Hookcraft and Spirit, you need to have all of them for something to really succeed. Spirit, like these are not mutually exclusive. They're all kind of blurred together. Where the others are like a pie chart, this is like a palette. 
where the colors are just a bit smeared together. So like energy is going to blend into earnestness, is going to blend into voice. And if you have all of one, you don't have to worry about the others. So energy in board games. So energy to me is like, is like the feel of it. It could be in a really tough, tight, economic, puzzly mm. game. You feel the frustration of like, oh, I'm one resource short. Or it could be the feeling of you're playing a trading game and you just made a good deal. And you're like, ah, oh, yeah, it feels great that I just made this. That tells you to like, Focus on what the energy you want out of your game is. A lot of people will refer to this as emotion-based design, where you're. Oh, I've not heard this. Oh, so so it's like um, you know how people say, "What do you start with? Theme or mechanics?" Some, right. The the hipster thing. Oh, is oh, experience. Like, uh, yeah. Experience, experience first yeah. design. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about that before. Yeah, and so the idea here is, uh, you want to think about what the emotional core of your game is. Even if you are starting with like a theme first, you still want to think through what the emotional core of the game is because it's going to be really easy to tell in playtesting if the emotional core is off of what you want it to be if you want something to be exciting but it's like slower paced right yeah uh, when i was playtesting colossus years ago it was like a very slow bogged down experience it, right the energy and, was wrong right because what i wanted was a super fast paced action thing where you're like getting flung off and then like yeah dropping on a horse and riding back over to it and what it was was a very plotting experience. Yeah. So the energy of the game wasn't matching what I was looking for. So I think that's an, a different lens to look at your game through. Yeah, I, th I think so. And as we mentioned at the start, and I didn't expect it to be relevant so quickly, we just played both played Root. Part of the part of the intrigue of Root is that I feel like it has a different energy than almost any other game because hmm. it's got the energy of a Euro and the energy of a, of a war game, and, the, and like each of the factions has a different energy, and like it's just this weird, indescribable meld. That's <laughs> such a useless thing to say, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. yeah it has a lot going on and it's different from faction to faction and even within like one faction it has heavy elements of euro and ameritrash but combined in i want to say an inelegant way because I, I really like rue and i think it's a very well designed thing but if, if i look at it's like, not aiming for elegance right 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 but like if i look at like blood rage like that's like an ameritrash mixed with a euro in a very cohesive way and when this I, one's disjointed yes and that's kind of what makes it it's janky and that's yeah. what makes it intriguing yes it's like uh we were talking with john about how um i think john and jeff both mentioned this about how games can be over polished yeah this, this is my biggest flaw as a dev hmm. my only flaw as a dev in fact <laughs> <laughs> whereas in root that's one of those games that encourages and explores and delights in its yeah. rough edges and that's that's what people want out of that experience is seeing how all these crazy disparate things fit together in slightly imperfect ways yeah vast almost has vast has the exact same energy as root just turned up a little too far yeah i think that's a really good way of putting it but... um one big thing to consider with energy as a designer is pace and you sort of touched on this but i'm, I'm going to look at uh mage knight versus azul have you played mage knight i have not that was my favorite game for a long time i would love to play it we should do that Let's it's, right it's best at two let's uh, just cancel the podcast <laughs> <laughs> it's best at two and it's just past two so that's great so mage knight is very slow very thinky very ponderous very janky like every time you do something the other player will be like well you can't do that for this reason you have to go back six steps and like start your turn again and there's rules in the book being like here's how you start your turn again because you made a mistake and here's when you can't do that anymore and it delights in that and it's for that audience well it's interesting as we've been talking about this it made me think of descent first versus descent second edition oh yeah please so descent uh, first edition is my preferred way to play and i think it does a lot of things that descent second doesn't do and those those things i really like and i, I want to emphasize but the key point relating to energy specifically is descent one was a plodding slow 
borderline depressing experience. Like <laughs> it was, it was a grind as the overlord, as the one versus the many, you're grinding through the enemy tokens, trying to make them run out. And the heroes, as they go through the dungeon, lose more and more of themselves right. until it's like that last person standing who you take out type of a feel. It's a very grueling, very plotting, exhausting experience. And it's very cool. It's very fun. There's not many games that do that. But what a lot of people wanted out of Descent, I think, was the exciting fantasy action game. And so Descent 2nd Edition did a lot of things to lower the information horizon so you have less information to plan out long stretches in advance by introducing uh, more dice rolls instead of stats. Right. And they did a few other things too that encouraged the use of your abilities constantly and reduced your ability to like refresh these things. In the first game, there were tokens as I killed... I always say I because I was always the overlord. Uh, as, <laughs> as the overlord, you would kill heroes and they would lose tokens. If they were not have tokens, the heroes lose. In Descent 2nd Edition, it's all based around objectives. So an objective might be that the Overlord's about to attack the city. And so the heroes in this mission are trying to light torches. There's four torches, they're trying to light them. And if the heroes get, like, quote-unquote killed the same way that you would in Descent 1, instead of dying and losing these tokens and having to respawn, in this game, they literally just get knocked down and they stand back up, basically. Right. And it, it is a penalty, uh, but it feels more like uh, if you're playing Borderlands... Than right. if you're playing like Far Cry, if you know what I mean. Like it's not punishing in any way and it feels like an expected part of the game flow. And the focus isn't on killing the heroes, it's on completing or stopping them from completing the objectives. So it's much faster paced. One other thing that they do is the campaign structure is different. So in Descent 2nd Edition, what happens is let's say that the heroes lit three of the four torches. Regardless of the outcome, it doesn't matter if they lit all four, if they didn't light any, we're going to move on to the next scenario. Right. But that scenario affects the new one. So you lit three torches. Three guards were now warned about that impending attack. Oh, now you've got cute. three units to help you out during the fight. Yeah. The two biggest things I can think of for board game energy are the pace of a turn and the, I'm going to say the end trigger and then separately, I guess, as a third thing, the victory condition. And you touched on this with Descent. You were like, they changed the victory condition and it makes a big difference in the in the energy of it. I'm thinking about Stonemaier. So Stonemaier has a rule of no rounds, no mm. negative player interaction, and really smooth, fast turns. And he doesn't always hit those, of course, but like, you know, no one's perfect. That, that's what he's going for. Mm -hmm. As a dev, and this, this uh, doesn't really line up with me saying Mage Knight's one of my favorite games, but like, I try to, I try to smooth it out because I want those smooth turns because I want that fast pace because I think that's where games are going. That's what audience is looking for. I think the most important thing about energy is what we we're talking about earlier with like that identity marketing. You want to make sure those match up more than anything. Oh, and also the art we should talk about. The art can dramatically impact the energy of a game. Oh yeah. Not in terms of pace, but in terms of how you interpret it and how you interact with it. Great example of that is Catacombs first versus third edition. Between first and third, they went from a traditional like dark fantasy edgy sort of a thing to Quan Chai Mori's very light, colorful thing. And if you played the game, it's it's a it's basically descent with uh, dexterity. It's a one versus many game with like a little crocodile pucks that you're flicking around. Fantastic game, but the feel of the game is totally different because it goes from like this really dark, scary monsters to like oh, there's the cartoon golem guy, and <laughs> it, it's very cute and it, it does dramatically impact things. Yeah. One of the biggest impacts isn't inside the game, but it's the context surrounding it, right? So Oh yeah, that's an amazing point. I would not have thought of. You should you should be on this podcast. <laughs> um so the most obvious we, example... we were out last night and I said my podcast at one point <laughs> and AJ was like, excuse me. And I realized that not only does AJ edit it, not only does AJ do all the show notes, 
I've not been on three of the last four episodes. <laughs> like, my podcast. Uh... <laughs> Go ahead. For the record, I do see this equally. <laughs> so the most obvious example of energy changing based off of the context surrounding the game is playing games online. If mm. you've ever tried to play a party game online, totally different energy. We were just playing one of your party games in person, which we've been mostly playtesting online. And, and every player, every single player was like, oh, I like this now. <laughs> yeah, because many of the players had played it online and didn't like it. And the change in the feel of the game and the energy was dramatic. Yeah, I was thinking, I mean, you're absolutely right. I was thinking about a game that you can play out at a party versus a game where you have to have a game night dedicated to it. Mm -hmm. No, no, also totally. Very different energies. Um, and even uh, the context of like, the people that you're bringing together for the game. And a lot of these are outside of your control, but you can't facilitate these and, a lot. And you can market it to them. And you can consider that in the marketing. And, mm -hmm. and by marketing, I don't mean advertising. I mean creating the product for a target audience. There's a game I was working on. It is now done and unsigned, but done. <laughs> and I'm very happy with it. And it's a party game. And the... Reach out now. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by... <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> I'm not biased at all. That's the best part. <laughs> so the one thing I really want to draw attention to with this... It's us playtesting it, and it's a, it's a game where you're telling stories. I've referenced it before on the podcast. I don't want to belabor it, but basically, you would take turns telling stories, and one time it passed over to this one person, and she just froze. She was clearly uncomfortable, and she really just didn't want to do that, but she was having a great time up until that moment. And until you shone the spotlight on her. Right, exactly. She was really enjoying everyone else telling the stories. She didn't want to have the pressure of telling the stories herself. And so what I realized was, I didn't use this terminology at the time, but what I realized was the energy just got sucked out of right. her, right? And, and, th and that's because of, even though you, you didn't need to be there, you didn't need to put that group together, it's still because of a decision you made mm -hmm. as the designer. Right. And so to make this more friendly to people who are in that position of they're not that outgoing, they're not that creative, they don't feel comfortable in the group yet... Sure, now the game is opt-in. Now you get to choose if you want to make a story. Right. So instead of turn-based, you will make the decision, oh, I've got a good story for this. And it had the side benefit effect of instead of having eight people having to tell stories who aren't good at it, now only the great storytellers in the group tell it, but everyone has a good time. If you like telling stories... And, and, and you can, even if you're not a great storyteller, choose to tell a story and have a good time. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I mentioned Mage Knight and Azul earlier. I'm using those two examples specifically because Mage Knight has constant disruptions during your turn. Mm. It's almost impossible to disrupt a turn of, of Azul. Like I don't even, and I'm talking stuff like rules exceptions where you're like, wait, can I put that there? Mm. I mean, we're in the third round and the moon is rising and I've got a red next to it. In Azul, you can't really do that. And that game has facilitated a quick pace because of the, the rules exceptions. And this includes stuff like interrupts and this includes stuff yep. like simultaneous turns. And like all of these are decisions that you make that drastically affect the energy of your game. I'm going to give one more example. Yes. Player count. Oh, yes, yes. Excellent point. And, and this almost ties into what I was saying about like a party versus a game night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if, if you're playing uh, Insider with four players, it's a totally different experience than when you're playing with eight. With eight, it's way more chaotic. It's way more loud. The energy of the group is automatically different regardless of who you're playing with than if you're playing with only four people. I'm going to do something I don't often do on the show. Make Maybe. out with AJ. Yeah! <laughs> I'm going to disparage a jelly bean game, which as we all know is the sponsor of the show are perfect games that no one should ever say anything mean about. I'm only realizing this now as we're talking. I didn't come in here with a pre-prepared <laughs> example of, of one of my games that doesn't work. Dracula's Feast advertises mm. a very different energy than it has. Now to immediately counter, I love Dracula's Feast. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really nifty, cool design. 
but people go in expecting an energy and they get a drastically different energy. And if you're lucky, <laughs> they dig it anyway. And if people know what to expect, they go in like with the right energy. But I, I've been told anecdotally a lot of stories of people pulling it out of party after playing like Resistance. And it's not a game for that environment. It just mm -hmm. doesn't work in the same way. And, and for example, if you make a mistake, you have to actually stop and start the whole game again. Now that's also true of Resistance, to be mm -hmm. fair. But Resistance, it's pretty hard to make that mistake and you can kind of cut it off at the pass by explaining one rule very explicitly and after that you're fine mm -hmm. whereas dracula's piece it's a it's it's a, it's a intricate game and so it's fragile to immediately give you some credit because <laughs> we all know that peter needs his ego stroke <laughs> um a new game that we're coming out with soon robotopia sponsored by jumping games <laughs> that's a game where i had played it a couple of years ago i really liked it and when I saw the art coming for it, that was completely different than I expected oh, for it. And then when I replayed it again more recently, I was like, yes, this fits really nicely with, with what you're doing because it's it's got a much quirkier way of using your resources and, and you'll move a master robot mini around to smash robots into literal cubes that you can scoop up. And those things fit very nicely with that sort of quirky offbeat and, and they could be done dramatically but mm -hmm. it works better wacky right <laughs> not wacky like whoa it's still, it's still yeah. a reasonably heavy euro but, mm -hmm. it's, but it's got a light tone yeah and, and the light tone was something where i just thought it was i thought it looked too goofy for what it was even though it didn't look like super goofy but then when i was playing it with the art on there i was like oh no the, the, this this fits very nicely so we've spent most of the time in spirit on energy because the other two are really kind of narrative based. And, and this is why I said spirit is not like you need all three of these spirit. If you go heavy on one, you don't have to worry about the others. So let's talk about voice next. Now, voice is a term that if you're a writer, you hear all the time. You've got to find your voice, write it. You know, people are looking for voice. And as a writer, it's one of the most frustrating things if you're trying to pitch to people because they're like, we're looking for voices. And I've never understood it until I started putting this list down. And I'm like, oh, I think I get it. And obviously, this is not perfect. This is a model. I'm trying to affect reality, blah, blah, blah. I think voice has two aspects to it, which is tone and perspective. Interesting. That's not what I would have written down, but go ahead. Well, uh, what would you have said before, before I go into it? For me, I, I thought of it a bit more simply. I thought of it as, um, as, a, as a style. And, and I, think, I think style is half of it. I think that's yeah. tone. But I think when a lot of people say voice, what they actually mean is perspective. So mm. I'll, I'll use a sitcom example. People nowadays are looking for, and, and this actually ties into identity marketing pretty strongly. Tone, I think we all understand, but you know, a, a distinct tone, a jokey tone, a generic tone, a news, you know, a professional tone, a, a rough tone. And I don't know how to relate these to board games, so I'm going to throw everybody for that. So tone, yeah, let's let's talk about tone in board games. This definitely has overlap with energy, which is why I went to this next, because a lot of the stuff we were talking about with energy does apply, but more specifically with tone. Tone you're using as style. Yeah, yeah, we, we can say style. style. Style is just as good a word, yeah. Okay. Tone is like style plus energy, now think about it. So yeah, let's isolate style. Yep. Sure, so style. So what's interesting here is most designers don't have a style. Right. The number of designers that like do very similar games and iterate many times, it's very few. Like, of course, there's always going to be the Rosenbergs or, or yeah, whoever. The Eric Langs. Yeah. But... And notably, they're top of the field. <laughs> Yes. But then you, then you get your Vladas and he has like seven tones or seven styles. Yeah. Reiner Knizzi is a great example. Yes. He has many very distinct tones. Mm. If, if you pulled out a Reiner Knizzi game, I could tell you instantly what it is, even though he has like seven different styles. It's like yeah. this particular auction mechanic, that's Knizzi. This weird triangular scoring, Knizzi. Yeah. But I think that most designers are very explorative and very experimental. And so I think that 
most designers do not have a consistent style in terms of something that's easily recognizable as a, like a, a mechanic or something. But I think that in this case, style would refer more to what you were talking about earlier, where you said that you tend to overpolish slightly. Like, right. if I played a finished Stonemaier game without seeing the logo on the box, I could tell you exactly who published yeah. it. But I think that it's useful to be aware of your biases. Like, for me, I, I also do the same thing. I really value elegance, especially in Rules Overhead. We were talking about this earlier in terms of structure versus content. And I. That was in real life, not in the podcast. Oh, right. Do you, want, <laughs> do you want to quickly dip into structure versus content? I want to do a whole episode on structure right. versus content. All right. The TLDR is structure is the rules of the game. Content is the everything else. So the, the, the specifics of cards and of tiles and of... Yeah. So the structure of Monopoly is the rules of like rolling the dice and the auction mechanic of buying properties. Yeah. And the content is what is on the spaces you land on and it's what, what's on the cards. So I am very drawn to games with a low structure overhead. So just for an example of that, um, Fantasy Realms has mm -hmm. very low structure, very high content. Mm -hmm. Conversely, uh, an abstract is, unless it has player powers like Santorini, so like Go is all structure, no content. They're kind of like two extremes that you can name. Yogi, Yogi is all content, no structure. Yeah. Go I, is all structure, no content. Yogi, I literally don't teach the game. I say draw a card yeah. and <laughs> do what it says. And so I'm very drawn to games with very low structure, very easy to learn. And so like when I'm devving games, one thing that I keep in mind is my tendency to, to that thing. And one thing I was, I was talking to Peter about earlier today was I'm trying to be very self-aware of my biases to make sure that I don't overcorrect for my personal preferences versus what's best for the product. It's, it's funny, when you were devving Werewolves of Wall Street, you cut a lot of the content. It wasn't good. <laughs> but you, you, we used to have uh, individual mission cards, and that was the only content of the game, and you cut that. Because it didn't work, because it's not a game that needs content. It's a game that just needs better structure. Well, I also like cutting content. Like I, yeah. I, I like low on both. The most, oh, right, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Traders of Osaka is a great example of a game with... Uh, the scoring is, a, is unbelievably stupid, but the rest of the game is extremely elegant. And those are the types of games that I, I really aspire to. Uh, Airland and Sea is a great example of a game that's uh, very elegant. And so anytime I can find something to trim up, I do. But I also like double check myself to make sure that that's not a uh, personal preference. So I think that knowing your style will be useful for knowing A, how you give feedback and B, to like double check yourself to make sure like if you're if you're designing in too far of a direction that's for you and not for your audience or or if you're giving feedback that's for you not for their audience having said that there is strength in leaning into your style of course and, yeah. and making it uh, oh uh carl tudyk probably has the oh. most style out of any designer i can think of oh yeah he did um motainai glory to rome uh Uchronia, and then like seven other games innovation, innovation. Is, is the one i always think of as like a very carl tudyk game it's funny because that's probably the most unique of his offerings but Even it is still different to the rest yeah, like most of his games are based off of the Motainai Glory to Rome engine. Oh, right, right. But yeah. it, it still has, yeah. it, it's still, still, it's not mechanically similar, but it's yes. the exact same style. Yeah, it's extraordinarily zany, powerful, crazy effects, but in a very, in a very well thought out structure. Yeah. So we're, we're in spirit here. And the idea of spirit is it's the stuff that stays with you. Oh yeah, we're, let's go back to Root. <laughs> Root has a voice like to go from style up one level, we'll put a flowchart in the show notes. Root has a voice unlike any other game. And it's sort of what we were talking about before. It's like, it's janky and it's weird. It connects in a different way. And no other game I've seen, do except for Vast. And so, you know, Leader Games as, as a company has a style. Mm -hmm. 
and Rude is just a more accessible version of that style. And that's what stuck in my head. This is what we were talking about earlier. And I think I flagged that at the time that we, oh, we'll get into that. Root is now in my head because of its voice, because of its mm-hmm. style specifically. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. You'll most commonly see this in in brands of things like that. That's where you'll be able to notice it in yourself the most easily because you'll see that special thing repeated. That's where you can notice like that, that particular yeah. style, that particular pattern. Panasaurus, but- their games have a real voice along the whole brand. Well, mm-hmm. not all of them, but like they have a voice for their brand. It's really interesting. So as a designer, what can you do about style? Well, A, I think a lot of designers, as we all as all creatives do, they ape the stuff that they like. Mm. And so generally your first few designs will be in the style of whatever you like. And, and that's not inherently bad. Mm. That thing obviously has an audience of you and presumably others. But I think the breakout stars of the board design world, if, if you're the type who wants to be a star, they work out their style and they lean into it hard. Like mm. Oath is more Colwell style than like the rest of his games put together almost. It's less leader and more Cole. Definitely. And it has an audience who are like, this is my game. Carl Tudyk, great example. Like if mm. you like Carl Tudyk, you like all of his games. And the thing about voice is that it's distinctive. It's yours. Like no one else can do that. Once you find your voice and hopefully now maybe that sentence that you hear all the time makes a bit more contextual sense. Once you find your voice, then you're making a thing that no one else can make. There's no shortcut to finding your voice. It's just make a bunch of stuff and work out what you love. But maybe it'd be useful if we went through what we think our voices are. Yeah. So I mean, I'm, I'm still I'm still finding mine, um, and and I guess we all are. But uh, I'll, I'll talk about up until you know the Jelly Bean brand generally. I think has a pretty strong voice, which is I'm always looking to make games that can only be played as tabletop games. Hmm. So Dracula's Feast, uh, Village Pillage doesn't quite apply and was our most successful game. <laughs> my variant in Lady and the Tiger, Meow especially, like a lot of my games have that like slight quirk to them while being very smooth and very easy to pick up. That's what I would say is my is my jelly bean style. And then when I'm making heavier Euros, my style is again, very smooth turns. That's a really strong focus for me. A lot of replayability. I really like that. And then just something a little different. That's what I aim for. I'm not, I'm not saying I always get there, but that's what I go for. I also think it's worth flagging no victory points. That's the thing that you typically oh, yeah. strive for. Yeah, race games or, or, or games with a single singular victory condition. So Meow famously, if no one challenges you, you win. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if anyone can challenge you, the game keeps going. Village Pillage is, is essentially a race to four victory points. Robotopia is a race to get all the guilds, etc. So yeah, no, no victory points is something that I... Do and because of that, and this is the interesting thing, like because that's such a mega goal, it's had all these knock-on effects where I've had to, as we've discussed in previous episodes and we'll discuss in episodes future, I've had to learn all of these not unique to me tricks, but I utilize all these tricks in a way that I think adds up to a style. Mm-hmm. What about you, A to the J? I am by far the most influenced by Descent First Edition. I would say that my voice is asymmetric games that have a very, very strong theme and that have mechanics very carefully tailored to that theme now, it sounds like i'm almost bragging when i say it but like i don't have a published game and i don't have any no, this is what you what you strive for yeah yeah and like i actually have like multiple complete games that don't follow this but i think that being able to pair a really great theme with a great mechanism for that theme and specifically um doing that in a way that that uh is asymmetric i think that's that's like my main style of what I try to do in all my games yeah or in most of my games uh, so the other half of voice is perspective which mechanically I think it's pretty hard to apply but let's talk about voice briefly in terms of theme 
Hmm. So uh, Spirit Island has a unique perspective. And yes. <laughs> I would say that is a big part of its success. Or again, not, and, and I don't mean success as in hook. I don't mean people, like, I think some people did. Oh, that's one thing I meant to mention a hook, by the way. Incredible craft can be your hook. Incredible spirit can be your hook. A voice can be your hook. So the stuff I listed under hook are meant to be the things that are only hook. Mm-hmm. But um, Ted Lasso is my go-to example of a show that had no premise hook or a actively bad premise hook. I didn't watch it because of the premise hook. The platform is awful. You have to have <laughs> Apple TV Plus, which was brand new. The property was a thing from six years ago that was used for like five minute things. And I guess, you know, uh, the actor who no one really liked from Saturday Night Live, the identity was English people. Like there, there was nothing there for Hook, but the spirit of that show, and we'll get into this with, with earnestness a little bit, the spirit of that show is so overwhelming that everyone in my screenwriting discord was like, no, stop what you're doing right now and watch Ted Lasso. <laughs> and I did. And I reached out to everyone I knew and said, hey, stop what you're doing and watch Ted Lasso. And they're like, oh, what's it about? And I'm like, don't, just shut up. <laughs> Bad then, question. Wrong question. And then I watched it and told everyone I knew. Yeah. And now we're telling you. Yeah, seriously, go watch Ted Lasso. It's amazing. I want to dig into your example a little bit, actually, because I think... Uh, Ted Lasso or Spirit Island? Spirit Island. For perspective, because yep. we didn't really dig oh, into yes, that Oh, yes, yes, please. So I think that Spirit Island is a phenomenal choice for perspective because it's thematically... It's the same theme as, as Settlers of Catan, right, the it, most it, famous board game, the most famous Euro game of all time. Yeah, it's colonialism, except you're playing like a pandemic style game and you are playing as spirits trying to ward off all of the colonizers and protect the uh, tribes people there. So the they just beautifully flip the perspective, which is very hard to do in board games yes. because board games are about control. And playing as the people who were, you know, taken over <laughs> typically means they're the ones without control. And so, it, yeah, it, it's, it's incredibly done in that regard. But I think there's a lot of little touches that really speak to perspective. My favorite example of this is the tribes people are made out of wooden components and the colonizers are made out of plastic components. Yeah. Those are the little touches that show that the person who made it really thought these things through and you can really see their perspective shine through in the final product yeah so again spirits about what stays with you and i'm going to use that time you killed me as an example where the voice i think is what people will take away with them hmm. like i think it's a very good game i think they've done a really good job the hook is really strong etc etc but i poured myself into the writing of that and you'll read it and be like how'd you pour yourself into it it's, it's, it's just jokes but it's jokes from a very specific perspective and they're jokes I worked hard on. And they're importantly, they're jokes you don't see in board games. So like, what's the funniest written board game you've seen outside of Cards Against Humanity or something like that where the game is is to make jokes? I mean, like, what's a board game that you read the rulebook for and laugh? And I think a lot of people, he said modestly, will read the rulebook of That Time You Killed Me and laugh and read the cards and laugh. And I think that the voice of that game is, is one thing that will land with people. I think, obviously, this is all yeah. conjecture. It's not out yet. Yeah, I think so too. The bar for writing is not high in board games. The bar for <laughs> so I'll be able high. to clear it barely. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! And I will say, sometimes I do find Peter funny. So, <laughs> uh, anything else for voice tone nope. and perspective? I think it's good. Hey, right, so the last part of spirit that I want to talk about is earnestness. Hmm. And I'm looking at my notes here. I got a lot of question marks. So the the four that I've got here, two with question marks, are authenticity the moral or theme of the show, the emotion, and as you can see, I was bouncing this between energy and relatability. Now this one is, I left this last because this is mechanically the least relevant. 
Except I want to say relatability. That's no, no, huge. Sorry. Uh, uh, authenticity, I meant to say. I think relatability is also huge. Well, but... except for authenticity and relatability. So you talk about relatability, because I'm curious where you're coming from with this. So what I, what I think of when I think of relatability is being able to see yourself in the thing. Being able to say, I love dogs, and this is a game of protecting dogs. Right, or but, but mechanically... Is like oh, mechanically that's what I was saying. Like th- this area is the weakest mechanically. Oh right, but thematically and stuff. Yeah. So except for authenticity, and I guess this does tie to the theme where the mechanics match the theme perfectly. That's what you think of as authenticity. Yeah. Uh, so I have truth slash authenticity. Huh. Um. And and the reason but, I'm saying that. Let's go ahead. Does, does that mean you're matching the the promise you give to the players as they like pick up the box? Is that what you mean by by that? Because authenticity yes. seems like a strange choice otherwise. I'm, I'm going to stick with authenticity, but I'm going to give a slightly weird example which is Captain Sonar, hmm. where the mechanics of that sort of are the theme. Like, they're inseparable in, in that regard. So, yes, it relates to the theme, but... And I'm sure there are better examples of this where they've just taken, you know, something in the real world and actually managed to turn it into the mechanics. Hmm. That's what I mean by authenticity is the only one that can really apply to mechanics because... There are games where when you're physically doing the thing, you are literally doing the thing. <laughs> Does that make sense? I'm not explaining it very well because it's uh, 2.43 a.m. Yeah, so authenticity is like the closest you get to making your theme and mechanics line up in terms of matching what you expect to happen when you think of it thematically yeah. to what you actually take in the game. And on top of that, people who know the thing being like, oh, they captured it. So like Calico was right. made by people who were into quilting or, you know, they researched quilting and understood it. Spirit Island was, you know, he, he did research into Polynesian culture and all that kind of stuff to mm. make it authentic. You can often feel that truth in a piece. If you do know it, it speaks to you. If it doesn't, it still has that ring of truth. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that actually makes me think back to my answer about style. And that's actually kind of what I was trying to get at in a weird way. So to me, it's very important that when I was designing my Shadow of the Colossus themed board game, that there were like moments where it's like you fall off the Colossus and you're, you need someone to come and catch you. And like the, the way that I designed the game, I really wanted you to feel that. And like with my horror game, I wanted you to feel like panicked as a thing. Yeah, that's a great you. example. Yeah. So, so um, with- I'm going to give you another weird example. Sure. Sentinels of the Multiverse interesting yeah so the guys who made sentinels well first i'm friends with them they are comic nuts they have like piles of comic and they read them in it and they read them as kids they internalized them and so when they were creating their world if you're into comics not into those comics because they don't exist but if you're into comics you feel like the you you get it you know yeah and it, it you know you, you might have a different opinion on this, but they tried to make those powers match the feeling of those characters that were clearly inspired by their true love of comics. Yeah. And it all comes together to something that was very successful. Mm. Uh, and especially because it was targeted towards the adjacent audience of, of superhero fans and board game fans. A lot of overlap there somehow right. with most board games being sold in comic stores for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> so That's a slightly weird example where the authenticity was there mechanically but it, it aligned. And again, that alignment yeah. thing, I think is really important. Yeah, that, that alignment, I would say is um, next to elegance maybe is like the thing I cherish the most in games. It's a very ineffable quality, but like when I play a game that just has that perfect lineup, I feel it in my soul. And yeah. I have- The theme, the art, the presentation, mm-hmm. the runtime, the number of rules, the pacing of it, the mechanics. I, I, I would say cohesion. 
is maybe a better word. Yeah, Cajun's good. I, I think of it as alignment because we're trying to make games. Sure, And yeah. so I'm like, cohesion is nice, but cohesion feels like you're just tacking it on. Alignment is like, you have got it in a line and yeah. you can tell when something's out of line. Yeah, that makes sense. Hi everyone, it's AJ from the future here. This episode ran a bit long, so we're doing another two-parter. We'll conclude this episode in two weeks' time. See you then. Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at FunProblemsPod, or reach us via email at FunProblemsPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. The latency is incredible.